0: I am really looking forward to this podcast because I have sitting across from me here in the studio one of my dearest friends in the world, my pastor of many years, Dr. Charles T. Carter. He is the James H. Chapman Fellow of Pastoral Ministry, longtime pastor in the state of Alabama, a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention and the Alabama Baptist Convention, many other ways his ministry has blessed so many thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people in the years of his life. He's been uh, associated with Beeson Divinity School as a faculty member since 1999, 20 years. And we're going to talk about Dr. Carter and his life and his ministry and his perspective. uh, Just a few insights. We we don't don't have time to give this uh, subject the time it needs, but we're going to uh, plunge right into it. And Dr. Carter, thank you for being here with us today. Honored to be here. Let's begin with how you became a Christian. Oh,
1: always. I'm happy to share that. Contrary to what many people have, I did not grow up in a Christian home initially. My dad was not a Christian at all. My mom was, but had been way out of fellowship with the Lord. And I happened to bring a picture. This little girl here, who was 13 years of age, lived across the street from us, and she was a Christian. And she came across the street and asked my mother, could she take me to Sunday school at the Calvary Baptist Church? Carl Horley was the minister of music, whose picture is here in our hall at Beeson Divinity School. And I'd never been to church. And went there, heard an old, old man, he must have been at least 40, (laughs) tell me that God loved me, Christ died for me, and the gift of eternal life was available if I would believe I did. And in August the 15th, 1943, after the witness of this little girl, she never gave me a Bible. She never witnessed to me. All she did was take me by the hand and got me to church where I could hear the gospel. And then she got me home safely. So that was uh, when I was seven and a half years old. I was saved immediately and saved eternally. And I will forever be grateful that that experience occurred. Now, that very same morning... Show the sovereignty of God. My mother, who had begun to attend church with me, was a Christian but was way out of fellowship with the Lord. We had two services. The kids went to church first, and then the adults came in the 11 o'clock service. And in that service, she came down the aisle, rededicated her life, and moved her membership. And the pastor, Dr. John McGuire, said, well, Bernice said, no, but her son Charles was saved, and they were in his service. So on the same day, under the sovereignty of God, we both, uh, she became active in the church, renewed fellowship with the Lord,
0: I became a child of God. Isn't that wonderful? What a great story. Now, you became a Christian seven years before <laughs> I was born in 1950, so you were already uh, a, a believer seven years before that. And very early in your life, God had his hand on you and called you to serve him in the ministry of the word of God. And we remember you in so many ways, but I think primarily as a great preacher and pastor and uh, also a very stellar Baptist. I'm going to <laughs> come to your Baptist roots in a minute. But how were you called into the ministry?
1: Well, that's interesting, Dr. George, Uh at that same church. As a young 12-year-old boy, the church had a very active youth program, and I became involved in everything that was going on in Southern Baptist Church at that time. And as a 12-year-old boy, we had a new pastor. Uh, my heart fell out when the man that had led me to Christ left. I didn't I'd never heard of a preacher leaving the church. Mm-hmm. And so yet God's sovereignty brought a new man in, Dr. James Harris, who was a wonderful preacher and later became a leader of Texas Baptist. He was our pastor, and as I watched him and listened to him preach, sitting down on the front row as a little boy, I felt the tug of God in my heart. And sometimes he would say things, and I would think in my little mind, well, I'd like to say that. Hmm. And at 12 years of age, I made a commitment to to go into the Christian ministry. I've never aspired to do anything else. That's been my heart and life ever since then. Uh, A couple of years later, I preached my first sermon right here in Birmingham at the old West End Baptist Church over in Princeton Avenue. I was 15. I preached on Revelation 3, 14 to 21, the church at Laodicea.
0: I called it lukewarm Christians. I don't remember what I said, but I remember (laughs) preaching. That's a great text. Absolutely. (laughs) Now, a lot of people may not know that you were also early in your ministry, very involved in the leading of worship and music. Yes, that's right. How did that happen? Well, as a young teenage preacher
1: boy, uh, I'd go anywhere people would let me go. And, uh, during that time, uh, I became, uh, I got contacted from a church out at Warrior, Temple, New Temple Baptist Church. They wanted me to come out for a youth rally and lead the music. So I went out that very night, a young preacher who was about six years older than I, but was a pastor. Harper Shannon was preaching that night. It just so happened that his church had lost their minister music. He saw this young kid. I was 16 years old, a senior in high school, and uh, the next week his secretary called to ask if I could meet them. I did, and they did, and I went to that church in September of 1952. I was 16. Harper was 21.
0: Yeah. But we had a wonderful time together. A great friend of yours and of ours. You know, when we started Beeson back in 1988, uh, Dr. Harper Shannon was the director of evangelism yes. for the Alabama Bat. He preached, I think, at our very first pastors' conference. I wouldn't be surprised. And been a great, a great preacher. Great preacher, a great encourager. So uh, tell us a little bit about your experience as a student, because you were a student at. What was then Howard College before we moved onto this beautiful campus where we're located today, back in the Eastlake section of town. What was it like to be a student at Howard back in those days? Well, mine
1: was somewhat different. Uh, we had very limited funds and so I lived at home, uh, which was in Birmingham and drove every morning out to the old campus of Howard and Eastlake. And I had had gone to my first church when I was a senior in high school, so I was already in a church. And so I had that responsibility on Sundays and Wednesdays and then sometime through the week. So about all I did at the old Howard College, I would go there and go to class, go home and study, and go to work at the church and go home and sleep and go back. I spent very little time on the campus, and I regret one of the things I regret in my time in college was that I really didn't get to know a lot of the students like I would like to have. I got to know the faculty. Uh, Dr. Vernon Davidson was head of the religion department, became a dear friend. And uh, during my uh, last uh, year at the old campus, uh, Dr. Sigurd Bryan, who's still living in here, and Dr. Mabry Lunsford, both came with the faculty oh, yeah. my last year there. And I had both of them in class. But... uh it was it was more working at the church, going to school, getting an education, and leaving. And I didn't really get to know the students. Contrary to that, when I got to the seminary, uh, my dearest friends became seminary students because I, I was there, living on the campus.
0: Now, I think it was the first year of Beeson Divinity School in 1988. You were elected unanimously by consent—a <laughs> unanimous consent as the president of the Alabama Baptist State Convention. That's a very unusual thing to happen. We usually have, you know, horse races, this one, that one. Uh, You were the choice across the board, no opposition. And you've had a very formative role, I would say, in the work of the Alabama Baptist State Convention and the Southern Baptist Convention over the years. Why are you a Baptist, Dr. Carter? Well... I was surprised that it was by
1: uh, us consent, but the background of that was I also know how to be defeated. <laughs> 1973, they had asked me to preach the convention sermon, and that's when I did my detailed study on the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that's what I preached on at the 73. It was the bicentennial, and met in tuscaloosa and after preaching that sermon there was a great response so someone got up and nominated me to be president i was only 37 years old <laughs> and dot nelson who became was a dear friend already and became a closer friend was uh, nominated and uh, he beat me so in 73 but it was providential i didn't need to be president of the state convention as a 37 year old guy but uh The acclamation election was a surprise to me. I didn't even know that it had never been done before. But I was told that probably the reason I got elected, Dr. Rick Lance did the nominating speech. Uh,
0: (laughs) Of course, who's today the executive director of the State of Alabama Convention. But you haven't answered my question, really. Why are you a Baptist? A simple answer to that, Dr. George, I believe, be
1: that I think what we espouse as Baptists is the nearest to any denomination, I know, to the teachings of the Scripture. Now, everything Baptists do is not biblical, and (laughs) some of our in-house fighting has brought embarrassment to me, but I still think, given the whole picture in the ecclesiastical spectrum, our interest in our centrality of Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, missions and evangelism, the inspiration of the Scripture, all to me are things that bring Baptists together. And I've never had a desire to be anything else. Uh, at times, wish I could help reform some of the things in Southern
0: Baptist, but uh, I'm sure people have felt that way all through the years. One of the many, many things I admire about you is the fact that you're a person of both conviction and charity. <laughs> And so you reach out to other people with whom you don't always agree 100%, but you have a core of conviction that's really defining of who you are as a minister of the gospel. And so I appreciate that spirit that you bring. It's made you a wonderful friend and colleague and ally for our work at Beacon Divinity Schools. That's what we try to do here as best we can. Now, uh, you mentioned reform, and one of the ways, in fact, I think you've had a very important role in helping to reform, it's an ongoing project, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, has to do with racial reconciliation. In 1995, you were asked by our president of the SBC, Dr. Jim Henry, to be the chair of the Resolutions Committee, And that's the committee that brought a resolution on racial reconciliation. That was the 150th anniversary of the Southern Baptist Convention in which we made a very blunt statement about the impact of racism in our own life, in our own culture, in our own denomination. You led that effort. Say a little bit about how that came about. And as you think back on it now, some years later, what was the influence and the importance of it? Well, the background to it, I think, is that Dr. Jim Henry, who
1: asked me to chair that committee, knew a little bit about my life, and we had, he and I were good friends. He had preached for us at Shades Mountain, and I told him a very sad episode that I had as a young teenage pastor of a little country church. Uh, we had begun in that county, Chilton County, near Clanon, a county-wide youth rally every other Saturday night. This is in the mid-50s. Kids didn't have many places to go. So the youth rally gave them something, uh, kind of a centrifugal force to hold them together. And so we had been doing that for over a year and had maybe 300 kids, and their parents and uh, adults would come. And uh, one day I got a call from a black young preacher in Chilton County. I don't even remember his name. And he said he had heard what we were doing, and some of the pastors, uh, African-American pastors, had decided they would like to have the same experience, but they didn't know how to go about it. Could he come and just observe? And I said, sure, come. We'd be delighted to have you. And I could take you to the church today where he came. In fact, I was in the home of someone yesterday that grew up in that church. Uh, Colonel Carl Cooper, 99 years old at Shades Mountain, but he's a product of that church, Liberty Hill Church in Clannon. And he came, and the only thing he did, he sat down with me on the front row. At the end of the service, I recognized him and told him who he was and what they were planning to do. Let's pray for them. I asked him to come and lead in prayer. He left, and I've never seen him before since. However, the aftermath of that was... Exactly two weeks later, as it turned out, that countywide youth rally was meeting in my little country church, Providence Baptist, out from Jemison and Montevallo. And in the middle of that service, there walked in ten hooded Ku Klux it was I have to say, I was shocked to begin with, and then I have to confess, I got very, very angry at the way the devil had gotten into people uh, and the disruption of a worship service. They placed $10 in the offering plate, prayed a white supremacy prayer, and walked out. You didn't know who any of these people were? I not know that the people. Were. Later I learned who some of them were. Incidentally, of those 10, three were dead within a year. I don't know whether the sin or the death means that God said that's enough, <laughs> took them home, but at times I've wondered if that were not the case. But anyway... A friend of mine who had helped me start the youth rally, he and I had a Sunday morning radio program. Every other Sunday I preached, every other Sunday he preached. And as I guess Providence would have it, it was my time to preach the next morning after this had happened. And I stayed up most of the night and wrote out a sermon, God is no respecter of persons. It's in your volume, you're in Dr. Smith's volume, A Mighty Long Journey. And I, I know with the preachers, we're supposed to speak the truth in love. I have no question what I spoke was truth, but I didn't do it in love. I was still angry. I would have, if I could have sent the, the ten of them to eternal torment, I probably would have. But I told the whole county on the radio that were listening exactly what happened, how unbiblical it was, how unchristian it was, and how those who loved Jesus and knew that the Bible taught God was no respecter person. persons that I hoped they would stand together and see things change. Well, I got all kind of negative response to that, as you would imagine. And as a young 19-year-old preacher as I was at that time, I really didn't care about that. I got one or two life threats, and that was I passed off as a grain of sand. I think some good was done, but it was too slow. It just so happened in March of 98, the year that I retired at Shades Mountain, I was in a revival in that county seat town of Clannon at First Baptist. And that week, this would be 1998, what I'm telling you happened in 1956. So 42 years later, they received their first African-American member. I went out and hugged his neck and asked the pastor, let me say a word. And I told them what I've just told you. And I said, folks, that's progress, but it's altogether too slow. So that was the beginning of mine and Jim Henry knew about this and asked me to chair the committee he selected the committee I had nothing to say with it we had lots of heartfelt discussions uh behind closed doors about the race uh, resolution but it was unanimous by the committee when we brought it to the convention and when it was uh Jim asked for the vote it wasn't unanimous but it was like 99% there were a few hands in opposition but overwhelmingly, it was approved, and I think it is it and it made the headlines of the New York Times the next day i 'm told
0: a significant event, I think, in the life of the Southern Brothers Commission so. and American uh, Christianity in some ways and uh, it 's still a ongoing project, as I say we haven 't to uh, solve this problem right, and that 's the title of our book. You mentioned the book, Dr. Smith and I edited it 's a book of sermons. On racial reconciliation, half by Anglo, half by African American pastors. You were one of them. Okay. Uh, Preach that. Uh, let us publish that wonderful sermon that you preached back in Clanton. It's called "A Mighty Long Journey," and it's taken from an, a spiritual. It's a mighty long journey. It's a mighty long journey. And we're not there yet, but we're on the way. It's not a marathon. It's a journey. That's right. Now, uh, let me ask you a little bit about your connection to Sanford and Beeson, because you have been a trustee of Sanford University. You've known probably every president, at least back to Major Davis, right? Absolutely. And so, uh, you continue in that role. Let's say a little bit about that, and then your, your perspective 30 years, 31 years after we began Beeson Divinity School. Well, I'm happy to
1: do that. Uh, I did know Major Davis. He was president when I was a student, and, uh, I knew Dr. Wright and knew Tom Courts very well and, of course, was on the search committee that brought Andy Westmoreland here. I was elected a trustee at Sanford right after I completed my service as president of the state convention. So I came on the board in 1990 and uh, a while back was elected a life trustee. I guess that's what they do when you get old. But uh, it's been a joy to get to know the university and the inner workings of the university uh, I feel as much love for Samford as I do for Beeson Divinity School because it was the universe that gave birth to Beeson Divinity School. And it was a wonderful trustee, Gerald Hodges, who was such a good friend with Mr. Ralph Beeson and who also was a dear friend to Tom Courts who helped build the bridges between the two of them and brought about the wherewithal to establish the Divinity School. Bill Hull and Tom Courts had the foresight and the divine sovereignty of God and asking a young man named Timothy George to become our dean. And in October of 1998, uh, thereabouts, uh, was the first time I'd met you. But it was a great day for the uh, Divinity School. It was a great day for Sanford. Sanford is a great university. And, uh, and the day and time in which we see so much liberalism on campuses across the nation, and particularly in secular schools, but even some of our formerly Christian schools have drifted way away from their founding. So I'm grateful Sanford is unapologetically Christian. Uh, even though it's a Baptist university, it has diversity. And especially I'm grateful for Beeson Vintage School. It's Christocentric. It's based on the Bible. It's committed to training young people in Christian ministry, and then Mr. Beeson said in his will, he wanted us to turn out pastors who could preach. Mm-hmm. And I can resonate with that. I think it's a great school, great faculty. The one thing I think very unusual about Beeson, I think it demonstrates in concrete reality that you can blend in the same Christian personality a deep love and devotion to the Scriptures and to the Lordship of Christ and to intellect. And to pursue the, there's no conflict or dichotomy between loving God with all your heart and loving God with all your mind. Uh, So I'm grateful that the that Beeson
0: particularly espouses uh, that wedding of those two. You've made a great contribution to our students, to our faculty, to our whole spirit here at Beeson Divinity School. And I'm very grateful for that in so many ways. Uh, We are better because of our connection to you, your friendship with us. Uh, And, um, you know, you prayed the prayer when I was installed as the dean of the school. I have a picture of that in my office right now. Thirty years ago. And uh, I wonder, uh, as we bring this podcast to a close, if you'd say a prayer now for the school, for its future, for its usefulness in the kingdom of God.
1: I would be honored to. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe when we look at the mystery of the sovereignty of God. Lord, we thank you that your providence and your sovereignty has been in operation in the founding and the ongoing of Beeson Divinity School. We look back and we realize only you could have equipped a layman like Ralph Beeson to have the financial resources that he had and the willingness to give half of his estate to this wonderful school. We thank you for him, for his family, and for their investment here but also we thank you for the vision of Dr. Courts and Dr. Hall to search out uh, a brilliant young scholar to come and lead us in the person of Dr. George. Thank you for leading him and Denise and their family here over 30 years ago now. Father, we give you the gratitude of our heart. I thank you for the faculty that he's amassed here who have amalgamated deep devotion to the Scripture, and deep commitment to the best of scholarship. We thank you for that. We pray that in the years to come that we'll be able to maintain unapologetically and uncompromisingly that commitment. We thank you that you've led faculty members here today and this year to be a part of the Beeson family. We thank you for the relationship we have with students. Thank you especially for leading students from all walks of life, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, and even different denominations, to put them under the umbrella of Beeson Divinity School, where we see a microcosm of what the family of God is all about. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy at Beeson Divinity School. In your name we pray,
0: amen. Thank you, Dr. Carter. God bless you.